Welcome to the Adventist Church of the Woodlands podcast, where you will find sermons, devotional thoughts, and current event conversations, all based on a biblical worldview. Heavenly Father, we pray that your word would go forth with power and with clarity, and that your people will receive a message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are continuing our look in the book of Daniel, our series in Daniel. Today we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 5. We've already seen several themes in the book of Daniel. One of those themes being the sovereignty of God. We have seen how God sets up kingdoms and he can take down kingdoms. And he's not just concerned with the affairs of nations, as we've seen, he also is involved in the lives and the affairs of individuals. We saw that in the story of Daniel, the three Hebrew boys, and very clearly last week in the story of King Nebuchadnezzar. So we saw that played out in Daniel chapter two, as well as Daniel chapter four that we discussed last week. So uh, we see that God is involved in the lives of individuals and how he pursues us so that to the point that he, even with King Nebuchadnezzar, he lost his mind and for seven years he ate grass and crawled on the ground like an animal. But also up until the time that he looked up and he acknowledged the God of heaven. So God went to that extreme to save a pagan king. And we saw his testimony in Daniel chapter four. Another theme that we have talked about in the book of Daniel is the contrast in God's dealings with two cities, Jerusalem and Babylon. And so we talked about how these two cities contrast both sides of God's love, his mercy as well as his justice. So today we're going to look at Daniel chapter 5, so you can turn in your Bibles there. And this is, to me, the flip side of the story of Nebuchadnezzar. God is making himself known to another pagan king. This time it is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar. And unfortunately, the outcome is not as happy as it was with Nebuchadnezzar. So we're fast forwarding about 15 to 20 years in time to the time of, of King Belshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar has died. There's been a bit of a power struggle among his sons and sons-in-law. And finally, one of his daughters marries a man named Nabonidus. Nabonidus becomes king, but he doesn't like being king in Babylon. He's down in Arabia and he left King Belshazzar ruling in Babylon. And so Belshazzar is a co-ruler of Babylon. So let's look at Daniel chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. Now this might have seemed like a very strange thing for this young king to do, considering that we know that Babylon at that point was surrounded by the armies of the Medes and the Persians. 
So they had already conquered a couple of smaller towns and they had marched up to the city of Babylon and they were actually surrounding the, the city of Babylon. So Babylon at this point was under siege and Belshazzar chooses to have this great feast. Now we're told that he knew about the prophecies of the Medes and the Persians, that they were going to be the next kingdom after Babylon. But it seems that he's lifted up in pride and that he is trusting that Babylon cannot be con conquered because the walls of the city of Babylon were so thick and there were two sets of walls with a moat in between. He wasn't worried about the siege because he thought they had plenty of water and food. The river Euphrates ran through the center of Babylon. And so he thought, we have plenty of water. We can outlast any siege. They also, in the Babylonian storehouses, had enough food to feed the city for years. In fact, we read that, and some of the historians say that they were actually throwing food over to the Medes and the Persian armies just as a show of bravado that we've got plenty of food. We're not worried about a siege. And so he was lifted up in pride and assurance. But this was really more than just a military tactic. It was more than just psychological warfare where he's trying to intimidate the Medo-Persian army outside. What we see is that he's actually showing defiance to the God of heaven because the prophecies were clear that the Medes and the Persians were going to conquer Babylon. But apparently Belshazzar doesn't think that even God himself could overthrow Babylon. And so he hosts this great party. I mean, think about Mardi Gras, French Quarter, Quarter. That's the kind of party we're talking about. A thousand of his lords, they're drinking wine and there's all kinds of debauchery going on even as the Medes and the Persians are outside the city gates. Now the idea that Belshazzar is flaunting God is very clear in the following verses. So let's take a look at verses two through four. It says, while he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles and his wives and concubines could drink out of them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank out of them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now, Belshazzar was obviously aware of the history of the Hebrews because he knew that the vessels were there and he knew where they came from. So he was aware of what the God of the Hebrews, he was aware of the God of the Hebrews and aware of what God had said about the city of Babylon or the nation of Babylon. But he reasoned in his heart that because the Hebrews were at that time slaves to Babylon, he told himself that that demonstrated that the gods of the Babylonians 
was stronger than the God of the Hebrews. And so he is flaunting God by calling for these vessels. He is choosing to make a grandstand, a public spectacle of the God of heaven. He knew what he was doing. Now, you could say that I could stop here and talk a lot about the evils of alcohol and that the fact that he was drunk at the time he was doing this. I don't know much about alcohol personally, but what I do know and what I have seen is that typically alcohol just brings out what is already in the person. So if the person has a bent toward one thing, the alcohol just emboldens that. So what we know and what we can see is that Belshazzar was already rebellious. He already had a rebellious heart. So when he was drinking, the alcohol emboldened that rebellion and that presumption because it removed what bit of inhibition that he had. Now it's, notice, it's interesting to notice that he, it says he praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. Where have we seen those particular metals before? In the statue, right? And they're listed the same, the same metals and in the same order. I don't think that's a coincidence. I wanted to talk more about that, but I'm not going to. I'm going to try to finish the chapter. <laughs> At this point, he's hosting this party. Belshazzar is demonstrating sort of the same spirit of defiance that Nebuchadnezzar did. Remember, when he saw the statue, Nebuchadnezzar saw the statue, he rebelled against what God had said, and he created a statue that was all gold from head to toe in defiance of what God had said, that Babylon would continue. And so God did something amazing in front of Belshazzar. He threw the he three Hebrew boys in when, they, um, when he tried to make them bow before the statue. They wouldn't bow, and Nebuchadnezzar saw the deliverance of God. And he saw that fourth person in the fiery furnace with the three Hebrew boys. And that supernatural occurrence led to the start of conviction in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. Something supernatural is going to happen here with Belshazzar as well. Let's take a look at Daniel chapter 5, verses 5 through 9. It says, suddenly, the fingers of a human hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that was writing. I think it's so funny sometimes how the Bible uses words. They were plastered, and the hand wrote on the plaster of the wall. That was funny to me. I have way too much fun, I think, reading the Bible. <laughs> and then it says, then the king's face became pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints loosened, and his knees began knocking together. So this dude is terrified. He is doing the funky chicken, and it is not a party dance. <laughs> he is terrified by what he is seeing. Even though he doesn't know what the handwriting means or what it says, something in his mind tells him this is not good because he knows that he has been defying the God of heaven. He knows what he's been doing. 
I don't know if when you were a kid you ever had it happen where you were sort of showing off to your friends and then your parent comes in and they discipline you right in front of your friends. I mean, you go from trying to show off to being completely embarrassed in front of your friends. This is what happened to Belshazzar about a hundred times over. So he's shaking, he's afraid. Verse seven says, the king called aloud to bring in the sorcerers, the Chaldeans and the diviners. The king began speaking and said to the wise men of Babylon, anyone who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and his authority and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. Now remember, he can, they can only be third ruler because he is a co-ruler. Co his father is the king. He is the second in command. So the, all that he can offer is third in command. So he is desperate for someone to read and interpret what this hand has written. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even more pale and his nobles were astonished. I can only imagine how the nobles felt watching this. I mean, again, going back to that story of when you're caught doing something by your parents in front of your friends, all your friends take two steps backwards. <laughs> I think that's what the nobles were doing. So they, re they all realized something important was happening, that this was uh, something that was not going to be good. There was so much commotion, apparently, that the queen came in. Now, when it says the queen, it's really the queen mother, because we've already seen that the wives of Belshazzar were already in the party. But the queen mother, Belshazzar's mother, heard the commotion, and she entered the banquet hall. So there's something, there's a lot of noise going on uh, at the sight of this hand. So apparently she comes in, she's not been involved in all the debauchery, she's not drunk, she has a clear head, and so she's able to tell Belshazzar what to do. She tells her son to call for the prophet Daniel. Now, if this is Belshazzar's mother, which we believe that it is, and Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, she would have certainly remembered what happened with Nebuchadnezzar, her father. She would have heard of Daniel, and she would have heard of Daniel's God. And so she knew to call for Daniel. Now by this time, Daniel is probably a, over 80 years old. He's semi-retired because he had been head of the, the uh, wise men of, in Nebuchadnezzar's reign, but apparently Belshazzar hasn't been calling on Daniel. So it doesn't appear that Belshazzar knew much about Daniel. He had heard of him, but he had not been taking any of Daniel's counsel. Now, perhaps he was thinking, um, like Rehoboam, Solomon's son, that he wanted to take advice from some of the younger folks. He didn't want to hear what Daniel had to say. After all, his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, was always talking about how the Hebrew God had prophesied that Babylon would end 
But Babylon was still standing. So he reasoned in his mind that there's nothing to this Hebrew God. Babylon was still standing strong. And we also see that he only heard about Daniel because when he described Daniel, when he was talking to Daniel, he basically just parroted what his mother had said. He used the same description that his mother had used. Now, it's not enough to just parrot the parent's experience. You have to have your own experience. And so he needed to have that experience with Daniel. So Daniel's brought in, and Belshazzar explains the dilemma. Look, man, this hand came. It started writing on the wall. I don't know what it says. Can you tell me what it says? I have heard that you have the ability to do that. And he offers Daniel the same material blessings that he had offered to the wise men if he would be able to read the writing on the wall and interpret it. Now let's jump down to verse 17. Daniel tells Belshazzar, keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. Now, it's, it, it's, I notice here that Daniel doesn't stop to pray like he did in chapter 2. When, he was, uh, when Nebuchadnezzar had the night vision, he prayed along with the three Hebrew boys for the, for the dream and its interpretation. He didn't do that here. He also didn't hesitate like he did in verse 4 to tell Nebuchadnezzar, what his, his dream about the tree meant that we talked about last week. Now, most scholars believe that the writing that was on the wall was most likely in Hebrew. So Daniel would have been able to read the writing because if it were in Hebrew. Because when he came to Babylon, he had to learn the Babylonian language, but he never forgot his own language. When he came into Babylon, he had to refuse the king's food and wine. Now, nearly 70 years later, he's refusing the king's money and the status that's being offered. So Daniel has stayed faithful the entire time. And we know from Daniel chapter 9, which we will discuss in a few weeks, that Daniel has been studying the prophecies of Jeremiah which would have certainly been in Hebrew. So not only could he read the writing, presuming that it was in Hebrew, but he also understood the interpretation. So Daniel didn't have to pray before coming in to see Belshazzar, because this is something Daniel has been studying and waiting for for years. He's been praying all along about this because he's been studying the prophecies. So Jeremiah, in chapters 50 and 51, had predicted some hundred years before that Babylon would be attacked by, from the north by the Medes and the Persians. He had expected that, Daniel had expected that the 70 years of captivity were soon to be over. He was waiting for this. So when he saw the handwriting, Daniel already knew what it meant. 
because it was a fulfillment of a long-awaited hope for Daniel and the Hebrews. It was good news for Jerusalem, bad news for Babylon. But I like that Daniel, before he answers Belshazzar's questions, he gives him a little history lesson. And he reminds him of the story of his grandfather, of, of Nebuchadnezzar, and the experience that Nebuchadnezzar went through. And then in verse 22, skip down to verse 22, he draws the contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Verse 22, he says, yet you, his son, meaning his grandson, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all of this. Belshazzar knew the story of Nebuchadnezzar. But you have risen up against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines have been drinking wine out of them, out of those vessels. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, nor hear, nor understand. But the God in whose hand are your life, breath, and all your ways, you have not glorified. So this is a challenge to Belshazzar. He was defying the God of heaven and praising the idols. His idols can't help him now. In interpreting the handwriting uh, and on the wall, Daniel is at once in one at one time pronouncing judgment on Babylon. And he's also establishing hope for the captives of Jerusalem. And he, he reads the writing and it says, and this is the inscription that was written. Mine, mine, tekel, eupharsin. This is the interpretation of each word. Mine, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. God pronounced the destruction of the Babylonian kingdom and it was at hand. It was happening right now. It was written twice for emphasis, indicating that God's judgment was final and it was, his judgment was accurate. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. So God at this point pronounces judgment upon Belshazzar himself, not just the nation, but Belshazzar himself. Now, these verses, along with so many other verses in the Bible, show us that God investigates and he judges before he issues out rewards and punishments. There's lots of evidence for that in the Bible. Now, we call it the investigative judgment process. This, this, these texts, I think, really support that God does that. He doesn't make a judgment or give a reward without investigating first. Perez, which is, now this is the singular form of Eupharsin that we saw in the earlier verse. That means your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So the handwriting said, numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Now, Belshazzar heard the interpretation, but he still commanded that Daniel be given 
the royal clothes and the chain around his neck and be made third ruler in the kingdom. Now, how valuable was that? <laughs> third ruler in the kingdom that's only going to last a few more hours. He's still not accepting that his kingdom is going to end immediately. He's not going to get another 15, 20 years like Nebuchadnezzar did when he came to his senses. It's happening for Belshazzar that very night. So these gifts were of no value to Daniel because the kingdom was about to end that very night. Belshazzar didn't know that. He hadn't accepted that. So this was really an act of continued presumption that God was going to give him a little more time, but he wasn't. It was going to happen that very night. And we see that in uh, verse 30. So at the end of the chapter, Babylon was captured that very night. We know the history of the story that the Medes and the Persians diverted the Euphrates River, as had been prophesied. And they were able to march in under the city gates. And because there was this great party going on, everybody was drunk, nobody locked the gates. And so the, Med the Median army was able to march in and attack the city. And it says in verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So it was God who had given power to the kings of Babylon, and it was God who was taking it away. And now God was the one giving it to the Medes and the Persians. Our God is sovereign. He's sovereign over the just and the unjust. There is no power that exists that he doesn't allow. But now what makes the difference between God's dealings with Belshazzar versus Nebuchadnezzar? And how does this story, what does it have to teach us today as we are in these end times? We've talked about before how we're living in the toes of that statue, maybe even the toenails, as uh, Pastor Ted mentioned earlier. So this is time uh, that it's not going to be long before he that shall come will come. I love the way that God for every character in the story, he makes a way for each character to be known, uh, for, him to, to, for each character to know him, sorry. Both the Jews and the Gentiles, the, the pagans. So he provided sufficient evidence for everyone to have the knowledge of his sovereignty. Daniel did that by studying the prophecies. He studied, he believed, he had a relationship with God. Now, we've been given words of prophecy. We need to study them now while we still have time. Nebuchadnezzar came into a knowledge of God somewhat slowly, but he came into conviction and he came into a knowledge of God, albeit he learned the hard way. He did repent and he chose to follow God. Belshazzar also was given the opportunity to know God. 
He was told about the God of heaven. He had the testimony of his grandfather. So he had sufficient evidence. But rather than bow to God, he persisted in rebellion. And he refused to personally acknowledge his dependence on God. He presumed upon God's patience and God's goodness that God wasn't going to throw, overthrow the Babylonian kingdom, or at least maybe not right away. Until one day, it was taken, just as God had said. So there was defiance, there was delay, and then one day, it was too late. Now we talked about last week a lot about how God does all he can to save us. He uses as much persuasion as he needs to, but without force. And as we are in these end times, because we believe that we are right at the door, now is not the time to presume upon God's goodness. I know it seems like we've been waiting for a long time. Generations have been saying he's right at the door. But soon he that shall come will come. He's waiting in mercy for the maximum number of people to be saved, but he is not slack concerning his promises. Now is not the time to take his mercy and grace for granted. Because just as surely as God's promises are true, so are his curses. Just as surely as he will deliver the saints of spiritual Jerusalem, he will destroy the unrighteous of spiritual Babylon. Sometimes it seems like we're living in the middle of a big party in this country, or in, this, in the world, really. And it seems like the party is getting wilder by the day. I don't even want to watch the news anymore because there's so much going on. I can't even, I don't even want to set it before my eyes. And it seems like most people are, don't seem to be cognizant of what is happening, that we are so close. Prophecies are being fulfilled day after day. We can see it more clearly than we ever have. But yet so many are not paying attention, just as it was in the days of Noah. And the world is still offering us gifts. But these gifts are no more valuable than what was offered to Daniel. He that shall come will come. But the good news is there is still time now. We're still living. We're still breathing. There's time right now. And God is going through to great lengths to make sure that people have an opportunity to know him. He's asking us to share with others so that people may know him. The gospel is being preached all around us. But head knowledge is not enough. It requires a relationship with him. It requires acknowledging his sovereignty and submitting to that sovereignty, walking in his love before it's too late, before the handwriting is on the wall. That's my prayer for each and every one of us. May the Lord bless us to that end. 
Thank you for listening to the Adventist Church of the Woodlands podcast. You can find us at woodlandsadventist.org and you can visit us anytime. You're more than welcome. God bless you and have a great day.